Dr. Dale on Quail, bringing you the latest news and views about all things quail in Texas. Brought to you by the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation, preserving the wild quail hunting heritage of Texas for this and future generations. Major support for this podcast comes from Gordian Sons Outfitters. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to this month's episode of Dr. Dale on Quail. I'm Gary Joyner with the Texas Farm Bureau. You know, serving nearly 15 years as the head of a Texas state agency is quite a remarkable run. Dr. Dale's guest this month is completing such an impressive tenure. He's Carter Smith, executive director of the Texas Parks and Wildlife Department. His retirement is effective in January, so what a great time to visit with Carter about quail and the efforts of our nation's premier state wildlife agency. Let's go to Dr. Dale now with his special guest. Well, thank you, Gary. It's always a pleasure to work with you and your staff over at Texas Farm Bureau. And uh, we've got a great podcast for you this month. I'm moving into November. And I hope that many of you, uh, if you're in the quail hunting circles, have read a book called My Health is Better in November by Havila Babcock. It's back in the 30s, back in the good old days. I encourage you to get a copy of that and and you'll really enjoy uh, the stories that he tells therein. I just want to comment a little bit as we moved out of October. Indeed, we were curious about whether or not we were going to see any late hatches. And I've gotten several notes and Facebook videos from folks down in South Texas, which were not unexpected. But when we had our quail master's class on the Rolling Plains Quail Research Ranch there in Fisher County on October the 11th, we stumbled across a nest and had 11 eggs, which uh, we were quite excited about. So hopefully you've been the beneficiary of some late hatches. And now that we're a couple of weeks into quail season, I hope that you've had some productive hunts. And uh, indeed, I hope it's better than uh, what the forecast would allude to. I welcome you to our podcast today, and I've got a really special guest. Our guest is Carter Smith. Carter has been the executive director for the Texas Parks and Wildlife Department for about the last 15 years. Uh, he is a native Texan, and he graduated from Texas Tech, and then he uh, wound up going to Yale University, and I'm going to quiz him more about uh, what that was all about. But he's uh, received a number of honors, including the Audubon Society's Victor Emanuel Conservation Award and the Texas Wildlife Association Sam Beeson Conservation Leader Award. So welcome, Carter. Uh, we're super excited to have you on board today. Well, thrilled to be with you, Dale. Thank you for the invitation and always a pleasure to visit with you about all things quail and more. And why don't you just, uh, for our listeners' sake, give us your bona fides as far as uh, where you got to, where you came from and how you got there. Yeah, no, delighted to do that. So, um, you know, I'd love to tell everybody I'm a wildlife biologist, and I guess I am. Unfortunately, those skills have long since atrophied um, in in this position, but those are my my roots. I um, I actually kind of grew up with one foot in the city and one foot in the country. Um, went to school right outside of Austin. Um, our family ranch down in southern Gonzales County in, in Smiley, and then we had a, a little blackland farm there in Schwartner in Williamson. County east of east of Gerald, and um, and so I'll have to say my childhood was um, spent as much as possible um, on either of those places. And if I wasn't there, I was I was longing to be there. Um, and um, I uh, you, you you mentioned it about about school. I uh, I actually was slated to start college on the on the east coast, and I, I chickened out. In, in July, and the only school that would take me um, that late before school was about to start that I'd been accepted to was Swanee, University of the South in Tennessee, and I did 
you know, a little pilgrimage there for, for a year on the, on the mountain in the Cumberland Plateau and, um, but transferred back to the University of Texas and was there, um, a couple of years, um, when a biology professor, kind of figured out that my, my track wasn't going to be medicine and knew that just because of my background, I loved to hunt, was very interested in wildlife. He convinced me to transfer to Sol Ross of all places. And um, that's what I did. I marched off to Alpine, spent a semester there, and then went to work at the Elephant Mountain Wildlife Management Area. And sometime during that tenure, ran into Fred Bryant, who convinced me that I really needed to come back to school and get a degree. And so I Went to tech and and that just completely opened up my eyes and world to the to the field of wildlife management and natural resource management and and love that. Um, uh, then went to work for the department in kind of a glorified intern um, status uh, with the wildlife division. I was so low on the totem pole, Dale, that they really didn't quite know what to call me. Um, but they sent me around the state to kind of work on a variety of research related projects and things that needed to be done on wildlife management areas. I was assigned to Don Wilson, who was the quail program leader and Upland Game Bird program leader for for a while. And and um, and then Bob Cook, um, who was the wildlife director, um, told me I really needed to go back to graduate school. And um, and so I did a about face and decided I'd head back to the East Coast that I never had made in the first place. And um, I went to, to Yale to study under a professor there named Stephen Kellert, who was really on the cutting edge at that time of, of, of some of the intersection of the social sciences and biological sciences. He had done some of the pioneering research about people's attitudes towards wildlife and and, and conservation. And then he and E.O. Wilson at Harvard went on to write that pioneering work on biophilia and biophilia hypothesis to kind of describe those kind of innate connections that we have to the to the outdoors. Um, and when I was at, at Yale, when I was wrapping up, I um, applied for a job that the National Science Foundation had up in northern Saskatchewan. They were setting up a long-term ecosystem research project in the in the boreal forest, and I moved up there to live on a Cree Indian reservation in northern Saskatchewan and coordinate research from, oh, about eight or ten different um, universities in, in uh, Canada and the United States, and, and lived up there, and and then was was uh, encouraged to come back to Texas by some friends of mine at Parks and Wildlife who were concerned about what was happening um, over on the Katy Prairie and the loss of waterfowl habitat west of, west of Houston. And so I, I came back to Texas and found myself right in the middle of all the fights between the developers in Houston and, and all the waterfowl hunters and environmental community wanted to preserve some of those wetlands and waterfowl habitat um, in the in the rice prairie country um, and that was certainly trial by by fire on um, managing and working with different stakeholders that's for sure um, left there and and um, worked in uh, northern Mexico and in South Texas for the Nature Conservancy and became their their state director ultimately and then um, had my arm twisted um, by Peter Holt and a, and a few others to uh, to come back to Texas Parks and Wildlife 15 years ago, and, and not the least of which of those was my predecessor, Bob Cook, who said, I promise you it'll be the best job you'll ever have. And, and once again, Bob was, 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 was right, but not only has it a, been a great job, it's been an extraordinary privilege. So it's been a, been a wonderful honor to serve the state in this capacity, Dale.
Well, you've uh, had a circuitous route to get there, but we, we're <laughs> glad that you came back. I sometimes get accused of only interviewing folks that read Raiders, but uh, that's not the case. And uh, <laughs> you did touch that base. Uh, and a shout out, you mentioned Fred Bryant. I always, uh, my, I was Fred's first PhD student way back when, and I've I tell people it's always a privilege if you can go through the rigors of a PhD program and still call your major advisor a great friend, you've had a heck of a deal. And uh, Isn't so that I, the truth? So I can do that, and I appreciate that. Uh, Carter, you said uh, you've been executive director for 15 years. That's a pretty long tenure for this kind of position, is it not? Yeah, I think it really is, Dale. I've, you know, I think they say the average is about two and a half or, or three years. Obviously, the politics of these kind of jobs can 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 eat you up, um, and they're pretty intense. And it's it's definitely one of those twenty four seven, three hundred sixty five days a year job. Um, and um, so there tends to be pretty rapid turnover. So it's it's hard for anybody to stay in the saddle for 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 too long. And so I feel incredibly blessed um, to have had the the tenure in time um, here. It certainly um, helped give me a lot of experience and frame my perspective on, you know, what we're doing around the state and what needs to be be done. But yeah, I, I, it's it's kind of an anomaly, I'll, I'll confess. Well, I want to congratulate you on, especially on two things, just from a uh, speaking part, and that's your, your communication skills. You've got a great voice. I don't know if you had any formal training in, in speaking like Toastmasters or if you're just a natural, but but you've honed it very well. And then you, what always impresses me is your ability to remember people's names when you meet them. That's just something I shake my head about, but it's such a good uh, it's such a good skill when you can master it. And in my opinion, you've mastered that too. Well, thank you for both of those. I think of you as one of the great master communicators in the wildlife and conservation profession, Dale. And I, I think for those of us that have a scientific background, you know, that's something of a, of a rarity, really. Um, but at the end of the day, as you and I both know, um, you know, our work is really more about managing people um, than it is wildlife. And so um, I'll tell you the class that really um, – I think helped more than anything on the communication. And it was taught by a grad student at Texas Tech in the communications department. And it was a public speaking class and it was required for the for the degree back then. At the time, I was very apprehensive um, about it just because like everybody, I got a stomach full of butterflies um, in it or worse uh, thinking about it. But um, there was an extraordinary uh, teacher of that. And, and she really helped, uh, I think, kind of give me some tools for how to do that. I had no idea I'd have to put it into play as often as I, as I have, but I'm, I'm great, very grateful for that class. Absolutely. Uh, my last semester at Tech, Dr. Fred Guthrie, who no stranger to the quail circles, he introduced me to Toastmasters. And after yes. I moved up to Oklahoma State, I became a Toastmaster for three years. And I tell my students and technicians and so forth, if there's a Toastmasters Club meeting where you're stationed at, go to it. You'll thank me later. Kind of thing. You bet. You bet. Um, you bet. Uh, looking back over your, well, first of all, uh, the, I want to reference the Meat Eater podcast you did. Most folks yeah. listening to this podcast are familiar with uh, with that. And I'm going to say it's probably been three years or so ago, uh, but you did a, a, maybe a two-hour podcast with Steve Ranella uh, over basically some of the things we'll talk about today, but a much broader spectrum. And dadgum, of the things that I had biological knowledge about it, you nailed them. I mean, you just nailed the landing on those. So congratulations there. And I knew that I wanted to get you on the podcast at some point in time and see if we can get lightning and strike twice in the same place. 
<laughs> well, thank you for that. Always a pleasure to visit with you and Steve both. Both of you are an artesian well of information and fun to talk to. And I'll, I'll confess, after that conversation with, with Steve, um, you know, he said, is there anything else? I looked at my watch and it had been two hours since we've <laughs> been talking and it just time flew by. So, um, so no, it was great, great privilege. And what an extraordinary communicator and ambassador he is for all things hunting and outdoors and wildlife and, 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 and conservation. And, and you two are cut from the same cloth. Well, yeah. Thank you. I want to, I want you to reflect back over the last 15 years with Parks and Wildlife Carter as executive director and tell me what, what would you consider your biggest win and conversely your biggest loss? Well, those are great questions. I guess, um, you know, really maybe the biggest win I'll cheat and give you, give you, give you two, although it's hard to pick from and any successes that we've had have been the result of others. I've just been a small part of it, but you know, I've got to say, um, being able to get the park funding over the goal line day was huge. Um, you know, our park's going to celebrate their centennial next year, you know, in a state in which we're very proudly private lands oriented, you know, the paucity of public lands that we have, I think, are disproportionately important, and our our state parks really tell the you know life and history and story of of our great state. And so, um, securing that constitutionally dedicated funding to ensure more predictability and, and sustainability to invest in the park system was huge. It really was transformational, and you don't get really many of those kind of transformational wins inside state government. Um, I'd say the Powderhorn Ranch um, has to be another one of those examples of just a terrific public-private partnership to come together to help um, you know, fund the acquisition of that extraordinary 17,000-acre swath of, of, of coastal ground grasslands and Mima mounds and depressional wetlands and 10 miles of frontage on Matagorda Bay and Powderhorn Lake and the you know marshes and, and estuarine areas and the live oak mots and you know what is now proving to be some extraordinary relic examples of um, a coastal prairie. It's really um, rewarding to see the work that our biologists have done down there treating all of that um, running live oak and then just allowing that seed bank to explode in the native grasses and Forbes and that herbaceous community that um, has come back is just, it's absolutely remarkable. And, you know, certainly in dry years, um, expect that to be a a pretty fine place to um, chase bobwhite quail, um, you know, along with, um, you know, what's turning into now to be some pretty decent hooping crane habitat along the coast. So um, a lot of really wonderful values on that on that front. There's a lot of effort and a lot of partners in that. But those two, I think, um, are two pretty good encapsulations of things that I'd have to say are really rewarding um, wins and times for the department that I've had the privilege of, of being a part of. You know, the biggest loss and, um, you know, that, that helicopter crash, uh, Dale, that when we lost um, Dewey and Bob and Brandon, um, you know, that's just going to stick with me forever. Um, the hardest part of this job um, is having to go and tell a, a, a spouse and or a, a, a child, um, a mother or father that, you know, their loved one isn't coming home. And, um that one just um, hit really, really, really hard, I have to say. Um, just three wonderful men um, who, you know, gave their careers and ultimately their lives um, in service of the things that they cared 
deeply about. And um, they love West Texas. Um, they love the mountains. Um, they love the bighorn sheep. They loved everything about the, 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 the Trans-Pecos. And all three of them were givers. And, um, and so just that's, that's just is a, is a, a really, really dark time to think about and reflect on, but, um, um, their loss and, and those of others inside the agency that have happened during the 15 years have all, all hit me pretty hard personally, I have to say. I'm sure that, I'm sure that is the case. And, uh, I didn't know the other two, but Dr. Bob Dittmar was, uh, he was one of our, um, keystones in the bob in the buckskin brigade south texas and north texas and uh yeah we really miss dr bob well carter you're you're kind of a lame quail right now (laughs) retiring here in another month or so so what's what's next well you're right i'm the lamest of lame quail that's for that's for sure i knew just how lame I was going to be when our communications team was, you know, writing the, the, the press release for the announcement about my departure. And I kept telling them that retirement was not age appropriate. And so they said, what do you want to use? And I said, well, just put skedaddling. Uh, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to skedaddle. And they summarily ignored me, which, um, you know, tells you just how uh, lame I am in terms of uh, them not following directions. But, um, but it's time. They you know, 15 years is a long time in a job um, like this. And I always said that I wanted to be the first one, hopefully to recognize when it was time for me to go. And not that there aren't plenty of people around the state that have already come to that conclusion. But, um, um, but I, I, I wanted to um, be at a point where I recognized that it was it was time to move on and pass the mantle. That's made easier or harder, depending on how you want to look at it, just by some family business-related obligations that I have just got to assume. And I, I simply can't do both. I can't do this job well and serve the, the, the state in this mission I love and then also devote the time I need to to certain family business things. And so that's going to that's gonna concern me for the for the next couple of years um, we're going to stay in Texas my wife's business is is, is based in Texas um, we're raising a son um, here it's home um, we've still got farm and ranch um, country in south and central and in in North Texas and other interests and um, and so look forward to figuring out other ways that I can give back to conservation and hunting and all the things that we that we um, that we care about so um, but I plan to um, stay on through probably the end of January um, the commission has named my successor and um, they've asked if I'd stay on just to help with the onboarding and transition um, so that uh, David can hit the proverbial ground um, running. And so he'll start on the, I guess, the 14th of November. And and, um, I'll plan to help him and assist him in the transition any way I can. And then again, probably by sometime in January, it'll be time for me to to walk out the doors of 4200 Smith School Road. Well, well done, thy good and faithful servant. Uh, Again, we applaud what you've done for the for the state and for the natural resources for the last 15 years. You mentioned David, I think it's your sex successor. Uh, tell us real briefly, just a little bit about, about what we can expect from him. Yeah, David Yoskowitz, um, named by the commission last week. I think David will do a, a terrific job. He's an economist by background, and he's worked at kind of the intersection of um, science and, and policy. He's a coastal guy. He's been the director over at the Heart Research Institute at, at A&M Corpus, so he's worked um, – 
on a big scale, namely the Gulf of Mexico. So, you know, three countries, five states, and what, 30 or 40 percent of the United States drains into the Gulf. So um, no no stranger to um, working and thinking and acting on, on, on big scales um, uh, geographically and, and otherwise. He's smart as a whip, very um, engaging. He's a terrific listener. Um, loves to hunt and fish and the in the outdoors. So, um, you know, he's a, a sportsman by by nature and um, background. He cares deeply about you know all of the fish and wildlife and park related resources that the department is in trust and working with. Um, and I think you know this is this is good. Is that you know he's going to start with um, you know a bit of a, a blank slate outside the coast um you know he hadn't been cut up by you know some of the some of the fights that um exist here in our in our in our world and i think he'll bring a, a fresh perspective and and i'm excited about him jumping into all things quail dale and and getting to work with that that community as we think about the next generation of work that's that's that, that's needed here and um i think that um you know the outdoors community are going to find him to be a a very thoughtful um um, uh, leader that um, is 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 keenly interested in doing right and good and well by all things fish and wildlife and hunting and fishing and parks and and so forth. So excited about him taking the reins and look forward to everybody having a chance to to meet him. He'll do a terrific job. Well, you know, if I'd been on the search committee, I'd have had one question for him, and that is, is he a quail hunter? <laughs> he assures me he is. So, um, and um, you know how much of a chance he's um, had, to, you know, hunt in places outside of the, you know, the coastal bend or, or South Texas. I can't um, speak to that, but but uh, I, I, I bet you can remedy that. Well, maybe during your tutelage with him over that uh, couple of months, uh, maybe we can uh, reenact. Uh, a hunt that uh, had you and Clayton come out to the Rolling Plains Quail Research Ranch. I think it was February of 17. I I'd love for you to bring uh, David out there so we get to know him, but I, there's no way I'm going to guarantee you the kind of success that we had there. And speaking of being a lame quail, tell us real quickly about your story being lame that day. <laughs> well, I'll tell you first, let me say that was the most otherworldly uh, quail hunt I've ever had, Dale. I think, what did we put up? 60 coveys? Um, I, I was thinking 55, but I left a little early, so y'all may have found <laughs> Well, you did. You did. You did. But, uh, you know, you and Lloyd and Brad and Clayton and I, it was just absolutely extraordinary. And, I, and I'll tell you what we discovered is, you know, the cure to plantar fasciitis is uh, a trip to the Rolling Plains Quail Research Ranch. That February of 2017 was just unparalleled. And I've, I've, I came to the ranch, as you know, um, kind of half walking, half crawling, but I wasn't about to miss that bird hunt with um, you. And, um, you know, by the end of the day, um, y'all were having to tell me to slow down and quit running in front of the dogs. Um, so yeah, what a special day, just extraordinary. I'll, I'll never forget it, Dale. I mean, it's just unbelievable how many birds that we bumped, um, you know, not just in the, in the quantity of the coveys, but the, but the size of the coveys and the age structure and the places we found them, the dog work, was you know unbelievable it was also you know dale really my time first time to spend any time with with uh, brad Quebeca. um and i remember you and i having some whispered conversations about god this guy's going to be a future rock star in all things quail and so isn't that wonderful where his um 
education and career has progressed to and to have him back now um, working um, with you and, and also helping with still some of the tall timber saying. So um, anyway, just a, a privilege beyond measure and and uh, 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 just did my heart and, and mind and body and, and plantar fasciitis a world of good to have that day and a half with you out there. Well, we really enjoyed it. And uh, towards the end of the podcast, one of the things I'm going to recommend our quail hunters and this year, especially those in South Texas is to try to motivate and instill more of a passion for quail and some of your field staff. So I'm encouraging and exhorting them to invite your local biologist on a quail hunt because odds are he or she has not been quail hunting. Most of them are young. They haven't had the opportunity. So get them out there, introduce them to the great sport of quail hunting. Amen to that, Dale. That's a great idea. I um, there's nothing more invigorating, nothing more inspiring, um, and 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 I agree. The um, the best quail conservationists um, are quail hunters by far. Uh, no no doubt about it. And so I, I want to second that. Carter, I'm going to change the tenor of the questions here just a little bit as we drill down on quail and some concerns that we have about quail. So I'm going to go into a little bit of 60 minutes mode. I'm going to be Morley Safer or one of those guys. Just a little <laughs> bit. But I'm going to precede those questions with something that my preacher Paul often says before he starts a sermon. Now, he gives sermons really in two categories. Grace and salvation is 95% of them. But every now and then there's a fire and brimstone. And so maybe maybe a little sulfur in there today, and he'll always say, "Now, folks, I want you to know I'm not mad at any of you." So he's just saying, "Who's the message?" But don't shoot the messenger. And I'd like to uh, induce uh, preacher Paul's precautionary profession as we move on into this. I want to talk first about the state of quail and quail hunters in Texas. And y'all just uh, a month or so ago, Parks and Wildlife released their 2022-23 quail hunting forecast. And for my beloved Rolling Plains, it's the worst on record. And uh, I, I just, it's not that bad for South Texas, but basically everywhere else, we've been on three to four years. Ever, really, ever since you and Clayton come out there, we hadn't had grown any quail since. So I don't know what y'all did uh, when you came up to the research ranch. But uh, our numbers are in the doldrums, and that parlays then into fewer and fewer quail hunters. I'm going to speculate that we'll probably see less than 25,000 quail hunters enjoying uh, hunting and, and quail hunting in Texas this year. So that's the first thing I want to talk to you about is just kind of the state of affairs and and being as you're the head man down there, how do we interpret that? What would be your response to those statistics? Well, I mean, they're dispiriting. I, there's no other way to put lipstick on that pig. I, you know, when all of us who've worked on quail and Lord knows you've been front and center um, on this Dale for a whole lot longer than me. I mean, you know better than anybody that, you know, this work is not for the faint of heart. Um, you know, and this certainly feels like one of those times. And I hate to be leaving with that millstone around my neck is, you know, the worst year we've seen on record in the rolling plains. That doesn't do any of us any good. And I just, I hate that. Um, and, you know, certainly these long-term trends with quail and grassland birds and small game hunters and quail hunters um, can make those of us in this profession and work, you know, feel like we're 
you know, Sisyphus pushing a rock up the hill. But um, you and I both know that, um, you know, we can't afford to lay behind the log and we can't afford to throw in the, the proverbial towel. And, you know, notwithstanding, um, you know, the numbers, unfortunately, that we're, that we're seeing this year and, you know, the undoubtedly commensurate declines in, in hunters are go afield with bird dogs and, and orange caps um, um, is um, there are good stuff going on. And, and I don't want to lose sight of that, Dale. I just, um, you know, that it doesn't reflect a lot of the commitment in our state, um, a lot of the resources that are being, you know, poured into research and outreach and stewardship um, and innovation and, and you know, the new stuff happening over in the eastern part of the state with tall timbers uh, moving into to East Texas and, you know, cutting edge research that's going on up there at the Quail Ranch by you and all of your cohorts, um, just as there is down um, at Kingsville at Caesar Clayburg and up at Tech and then out at, out at Sol Ross. So I um, you know, one year does, does, um, is, is, is not going to be how we're going to, um, uh, decide whether or not to, to, to keep on keeping on because, um, any quail hunter that's been around for any period of time knows that, you know, this is a sprint, um, and the urgency is real by which we need to act and continue making investments. Um, but we, we also need to continue to treat it like a marathon and not give up because of the dispiriting forecast that we have this, this year. I, uh, Again, we just finished up our Quail Masters class, and I added a new component to each one of those four Quail Masters sessions, and it was called Hollywood and Quail. I tell the group, I said, if if you're into quail like I am, you see quail everywhere. Uh, in the movies, there'll be a line, like for example, uh, this last session, it was a few good men, and you can't handle the truth, and those kind of things. Uh, but I, I want to steal a line or paraphrase a line from Apollo 13, which was another one of their assignments. And it, it would be, Austin, we have a problem. And I, I guess my question to you is, down on 4200 Smith School Road, is quail decline or quail frustrations sensed there at the, uh, at the Parks and Wildlife headquarters? No, absolutely. And I hate the fact that you even feel like you got to ask that question, Dale. And and I know why you do. You know, you and I hear the same things from um, from frustrated quail hunters um, in different parts of the state. And a lot of that tends to be regionally focused, um, as we know. But I hate the fact that, that anybody um, that cares about the outdoors would think that the department and its biologists, you know, were somehow indifferent or agnostic or unaware about what's happening with quail birds um, around the state in the south and, and really throughout all of the out of the quail range. Um, you know, this issue of the decline of grassland birds with, you know, quail being the the canary in the coal mine and the in the bellwether for, you know, a lot of our interest in this decline is 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 huge. Um, and it's, you know, prompted really, you know, a huge body of work that the department is invested in helping to, you know, reshape joint venture related efforts like the Oaks and Prairies to focus more um, on grassland birds and, and, and using quail as a way to engage landowners, um, you know, really working hard to try to make sure that the farm bill 
has got significant resources. It can be invested um, in private lands for quail-related management. Um, you know, partnerships that we've got, like the Pastures for Upland Birds or the Grassland Restoration Incentive Program for call share incentives are, are things that, you know, we want to bring to the table to help landowners set the set the stage from a habitat perspective when conditions are right for, you know, quail do be, to be able to respond um, more robustly when, again, um, things are, are, are ready for that. So nobody is indifferent or agnostic um, here about that at all. Um, and it's just so incredibly frustrating, I think, for biologists writ large to um, see so much effort poured into something and not be able to see the the fruits of of, of those efforts. And you know, clearly, we're going to see these these ups and downs of grassland birds, and we just are. It's just the the nature of those those species and the kind of boom bust cycles that we that we see, but that's not an argument for complacency or for doing nothing either. You know, it's an argument for how do we even those out and how do we, you know, manage for the bad times so that um, when the good times come, we're ready to go. And the other part of that that I'll, I'll add, Dale, is, you know, as much as we've all studied quail and, and worked on quail, you know, there probably still are some things that we really don't know in places. And um, and that's certainly a catalyst, I hope, for the continued terrific research that, you know, you and others um, of your peer group around the state will continue to, to focus on um, because I just I think that that research is going to be going to be essential for um, helping us um, better manage a resource that we all care passionately about and absolutely though do not want to see go away on our watch. Well. You said on your watch, I made the mistake of when we were in the quail doldrums back in 9, 10, and 11, I made the mistake to the Rolling Plains quail research folks saying, not on my watch. Quail are not going to go blink out on my watch in West Texas. I kind of wish I just stepped away in 2017 uh, because it's a lot easier being referred to as a quail guru, guru in 15, 16 than it has been in 21 and 22. So, yeah, we, yeah again, there's a lot of... Um, enigmas if you will when people introduce me as a quail guru i tell them undoubtedly as i'm walking to the lectern you can hear me under my breath saying there's a whole lot i don't understand about quail you mentioned um or i'm going to paraphrase this as equity and one of the and, and i'll just say banter among quail hunters and you've heard it too is that tpw has forsaken quail and it's all about white-tailed deer how would you respond to that well, I, you know, I don't think that's fair at all. Um, you know, you think about colleagues, certainly you and I know um, and love the Dana Wrights and Chip Ruthven and John McLaughlin's of the world and a whole bunch of others that are in the department that, you know, spend, you know, most of their waking hours, you know, thinking about quail and how to manage for quail and, and other species too, but are, are, are top of mind. So I don't think that's reflective at all of, you know, the department or our wildlife team and their interest or focus focus or emphasis. At the same time, you know, I understand that frustration. Um, you know, deer can certainly suck all the oxygen out of the room. And when we entered this kind of stage of deer hell in our in our state, um, you know, really back at a time when quail numbers were plummeting, um, you know, in 12 and, and, and 13, um, when chronic wasting disease was discovered in the state. 
um, that has taken up an inordinate amount of time and effort and, and resources. And I hate the fact that, you know, our quail community or parts of our quail community have um, somehow perceived that as being that the department is 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 no longer interested in in, in quail or again is um, indifferent to what's happening in in uh, many parts of the state when we when we think about you know quail and quail habitat and quail populations and quail cycles and quail hunters and and so forth um, you know from a wildlife perspective um, the counter to that is is that you know you could argue that um, deer are a bit of a goose that laid the golden egg when we we think about you know why people are buying rural land why they're managing land why they're investing in stewardship and in habitat and to a large degree um, you know an interest in deer has been you know an entree for our biologists and a lot of others from um, both public and private agencies to get access to private lands to work on wildlife and habitat um, but it also opens the door for us to talk about, you know, quail and turkeys and, and, and grassland birds and, and a whole lot more and to help, um, you know, meet whatever goals those landowners have, but also make sure that we're out there carrying the message about other species that really need help from active management, whether that's, you know, fire or grazing or brush management or, you know, whatever the whatever the issue is. Um, but there's no doubt that, you know, deer are a huge resource um, in Texas that, um, you know, I call this place the land of a thousand hills to die on. Um, you know, some of them are bigger than, than others. Um, and with the, you know, five or six million deer in our state, you know, come about five or six million opinions about how we ought to manage them. And that can sometimes, unfortunately, um, co-opt um, a lot of the conversation and work um, that, um, you know, we all want to be focused on with respect to other species of of, of wildlife. Um, but, um, you know, all that being said is I'll keep driving us back to, you know, there are a lot of good things going on in our state for quail. Um, and, you know, certainly as we benchmark that against what's happening in other states throughout the, the quail range, um, notwithstanding some of the outcomes that we're seeing, you know, this year in places like the Rolling Plains, um, there is some terrific work being done by, you know, private landowners and, and, and university and agency-related um, personnel and, and so forth that um, we've got to think are going to reap dividends in the in the long run. Well, we certainly hope so. Uh, a hypothetical question for you, Carter. You take your marching orders from your commission. Uh, I think it's, is it nine person, eight or nine? Yeah, person yeah, yeah, commission. yeah. And obviously the, I guess the interest in that kind of wax and wane, if they have specific interest in quail versus deer versus whooping cranes or whatever the case might be. And I know they're, they're championing all of those, but, uh, if, if your commission had a meeting today and they said, boy, we've, these quail hunters have really got our ear now. We're going to have an all hands on deck for quail. We're going to make them the focus of everything we do over the next five years. What would, what do you think that would look like in the department? 
Well, I, um, you know, and again, and I know that's a hypothetical just because you know how big a ship the department is and all the many things we do. Um, but I think there'd be a number of things. One, I think they'd want to look at, you know, what we're funding on the research stuff. What are we doing to invest in our, 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 our learning? And I, you know, I think we've invested several million dollars in quail just in the last couple of years on a wide variety of projects. But the obvious question would be, what else can we do to accelerate that? Um, what other investments do we need to be making on the habitat management side um, in strategic core areas that we think can help accelerate recovery again when, you know, we get more suitable rainfall and weather conditions in places where, you know, the birds are, are, are going to respond. Um, I think we'd look at, um, you know, if again, if, if the sky's the proverbial limit, um, you know, are there other um, field biologists that we would want to bring on board from a technical persistence or um, like we're doing right now to expand capacity with, you know, groups like Quail Forever um, um, or Tall Timbers or, or, or whatever um, to help um, have, uh, you know, again, just a bigger army of technical assistance related biologists that are focusing on, um, you know, quail and quail management and, and, and grassland related um, habitat management and, and, and so forth. Um, and so I'd, I'd, I'd see, I'd see a, um, a real focus on, again, even more research, um, more habitat related work, um, more technical assistance. Um, the department's not going to be all things to all people. I mean, I think when we think about this this important topic of quail, we've got to look at kind of what pillar or pillars does the department play um, within the construct of what everybody is doing in Texas. And um, and we need everybody. We've got to have the hunters without their passion, um, without their funding, without the fact that they care so deeply. All of this is for naught and it'll go away. And so we've got to continue investing in making sure that we're growing the next generation of quail hunters and they've got places to go. Um, if the landowners in Texas don't care about quail, then they're going to they're going to disappear from the from the from the map. And so anything that we can do to continue to incentivize private landowners and help encourage them where needed, provide call share and technical and scientific ex, um, um, expertise is going to be is going to be is going to be critical because in our state, if we want to get anything done at any kind of a scale, it's going to be in partnership with private landowners and it's going to be in a voluntary um, related related partnership so those two things are are foundational I think we are richly blessed in Texas um, by the fact that we've got all these terrific centers of excellence from an R&D related perspective. And, um, you know, whether that's you and your team um, at Rolling Plains Quail Research Ranch or the work going on at Tech or at Caesar Clayburg Wildlife Research Institute or the stuff being done um, on blue quail out at the Borderlands Research Institute, you know, now having tall timbers um, bring their outstanding expertise in, um, you know, southern forested communities and longleaf and wiregrass and, and those kind of communities bringing um, that expertise to, to, to East Texas just adds to adds to that. But that's very unique to have that many kind of centers of quail excellence um, in, a, in a state in the in the quail range. And then we've got this terrific body of, of um, nonprofits um, and other other agencies that are 
working on things and and whether again it's you know the quail coalition or the park city's quail coalition with provided uh, funding or or quail forever and and getting work on the ground there's a lot of folks pulling the sled and the department is one of them um and so i think when we look at, at quail writ large you know we've got to look at that whole playing field and where can the department best invest resources how can we help enable things you know are there things that we need to be doing better from a from a from a the scientific funding perspective is there more capacity that needs to be added to work with landowners on um, quail and and quail management are there more um, resources that we need to help fund habitat related improvements all of that um, you know from my perspective needs to be an ongoing dialogue and conversation and guided can by, you know, um, advisory groups like we have with our Upland Game Bird Advisory Committee to help give us the best counsel to give the best commission about where we need to put resources. And uh, you made some great points there, and, and I've had the blessing of being on that uh, Upland Game Bird Advisory Committee. Before that, which is probably before your time, we used to have a Texas, I'm sorry, a, yeah, Texas Quail Technical Committee. So that was uh, folks like Brad Dabbert and Lenny Brennan and uh, Fidel Hernandez and me and others would get would get together on the day before the Upland Game Bird Advisory met to provide input, technical input, to the advisory committee. But somewhere along the way, that got that got uh, nixed out, and and I lament that. And uh, now that we've got our new headquarters about ready to open up in at the research ranch, we hope to kind of uh, reintroduce some of that. Maybe not in a direct uh, conduit to, to parks and wildlife, but for our own professional development, uh, we need to hear from our colleagues and so forth and, and be able to uh, speak quite frankly between one another about what needs to be done and, and so forth. Um, Carter, on the premise that all politics are local. <laughs> yeah. And I'm fighting for quail here. And again, if you've ever been to one of y'all's commission meetings, you know, at least you used to have in Austin and used to, I generically referred to as the bitch session where everybody would come and lament their uh, concerns, what's going on, so forth. Uh, first of all, we'd always try to send two or three kids from Texas brigades just to give you all some good news and a slap on the back. Uh, but I know in recent times, it's probably more, I won't mention specific groups, but uh, with uh, intensive deer management issues and so forth. Are the quail hunters are they lacking uh, as far as political input? Um, again, you've been there, you've been in the, the lightning rod for an awful lot of that probably over, the, especially the last five, 10 years. Are quail hunters being lost somewhere? Should we be mounting an army uh, and, and attending some commission hearings or uh, everything good and well? Well, I, first off, you're never going to hear me argue for complacency or laying behind the log. Um, you know, I think it's critical that we've got our advocates and ambassadors for, you know, whatever the issue is that people concerned about. And as I, I, I said before, again, I, I call this place the land of thousand hills to die on. And I, I say that really fondly because we've got so many things around our state. Pick them, you know, whether it's the red snapper interest or the oyster interest or the flounder interest or the trout interest. Um, 
um, you know, or the quail interest or the deer interest or the turkey interest or the golden cheek warbler interest, you know, interest, what, whatever. I mean, you know, pick your species, pick your community, pick your geography. Um, you know, you've got a group of, of, of advocates for those and people need to show up. I, I'm a big believer um, in that because, um, you know, the department is a big ship um, and we cover a lot of ground literally and, and, and figuratively. Um, do I think that, that, that quail hunters um, are, you know, represented um, sufficiently politically? Sure. Um, um, yes. I mean, if, when quail hunters decide that they want to get uh, motivated and um, want to advocate for um, things, things can happen. And, and, you know, we saw that down at the legislature with some, you know, movement to redirect funds from the Upland Game Bird stamp to um, make some very focused investments over time. And, um, and so, you know, when quail hunters in a part of the state are unhappy, they don't lay behind the log. You know, they, they, that they certainly let us know. I think you know what's what's more important though, even though than that, Dale is 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 making sure that before you know those groups are you know unleashed on the department and the commission is make sure that the literacy about you know what all is going on on the quail front outside of their immediate area is at least made known to them. So. Um, when folks are advocating or agitating for for change or more of something or less of something, that they have a more a more complete understanding of of what's going on. And one of the things that I worry about that, you know, we at the department may not have done as good a job is you know communicating a lot of the investments that we do make in quail and the support that we provide. Um, again, a lot of the universities and the work on private lands and the technical assistance and the efforts to um, help influence you know critically important pieces of of legislation and funding like the like the farm bill and the cost share incentives and the landowner recognition that we do for folks that are doing out standing quail management and more through the Lone Star Land Steward Awards. But I, I worry that that gets lost, Dale, um, by the enormous frustration that, you know, many of us have in parts of the state um, when we see quail numbers just go through the proverbial floor um, like they do now. And so I think it's critical that, that we keep everybody on the reservation and pulling the sled positively forward, but recognize too that Parks and Wildlife is not going to be the be-all, end-all um, when it comes to quail. But Parks and Wildlife is also not the, not the, not the enemy. Parks and Wildlife is a friend and an ally and, a, and an asset, um, but our parts of intersection and work on arresting quail decline um, and, 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 and trying to fight back the erosion in quail numbers that go, go with it are going to be best served in specific lanes and um, and those lanes are going to be incredibly well complemented by all these other partners that are out there of which obviously you know groups like you know the the, the Park Cities Quail Coalition and Rolling Plains and Caesar Clayburg and and uh, Quail Forever and, and 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 others are are integral to that too so so I I hope folks will continue to keep the faith 
um, and um, will fight hard and long to help um, arrest this decline that we are that we are seeing. Will not give up, um, and will do everything we can to help us grow the next generation of quail hunters. Um, because really, without the hunting public and that bedrock for support, um, it ultimately you know you do see erosion of interest and resources and focus and emphasis. And so. Um, when the quail hunter um, um, decides it's it's it, it's not worth spending any more time on this, what suffers are the quail, um, and I I just would just would just would hate to see that. Well, um, all of us would, and certainly it, it takes a village and a village, like you said, pulling in the in the same direction. Um, I mentioned 1995 and that quail technical committee that was used to be in place. And one of the products thereof was a publication called where have all the quail gone? And there were three uh, summary conclusions in that step one was to improve quail habitat on a network of public land wildlife areas throughout the state of Texas. So my, my question as it relates to that one is, are we doing all we can on the WMAs to promote quail? And, and you know that I just several podcasts ago, uh, interviewed Chip Ruthven up there at the Matador, and that's probably the most popular while a uh, public hunting area for quail in the state. So, uh, but are there other opportunities? You mentioned the powder horn a while ago. I know there's a new um, WMA. I'm, I'm st- um, can't call the name up in uh, uh, Palo Pinto. Or Yoke and Dunes. Yeah. Yeah. Are there opportunities where we could again, and I'll even mention the Kerr Wildlife Area, which I always said was the kind of the crown jewel in Parks and Wildlife's WMAs back when I did more deer work 20 years ago. But there are quail opportunities in a lot of those places, but uh, I don't know. They just uh, they haven't risen to the top kind of thing. What, what would you, if I said, what are some other opportunities that we might take advantage of there? Well, you covered them. I mean, I first off, I agree with you. Yes, um, there are undoubtedly more that we can we can do on WMAs and and want to do, and and we are. And you know, some of that new work that's 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 going on and on, you know, the Yoakum Dunes Wildlife Management Area over there in Yoakum and Terry County, there uh, kind of west southwest of of of, of Lubbock. Um, you know, interestingly, there is some work being done there on the on the Kerr, um, and see what can be done on the on the Bob White Quail habitat there in the Edwards Plateau, probably likely to be limited just by nature of the geography and the in the habitat. But um, nonetheless, um, you know, there, there are quail, obviously, in the Edwards Plateau and certainly the western Edwards Plateau where, you know, there can be really good huntable numbers. Um, you know, we're doing a fair amount of work on the Muse um, there in north central Texas and and at our new Roger Fawcett uh, WMA there in, in, in Palo Pinto County. And then, you know, over east Texas, you know, places like the like the Gus Angling. So, um, yes, the, the, the short answer is there, there is more going on besides the, the Matador and the Shap and the Chaparral, which in the Daltry, which, you know, I'd say those have been kind of traditionally held up is, is some of the more quail centric wildlife management areas. The, the incredible, um, uh, habitat work going on on the Powderhorn. Again, I think we'll set the stage primarily in dry years, Dale, because, 
you know, as you know, that part of the coastal prairie can get pretty wet. And um, in those wet years, while, you know, a boon, if they come at the right times and over the right intervals for, you know, north and south Texas, um, um, for good quail numbers at a place like the Powderhorn and that part of the coastal prairie, you know, drier conditions actually can be more more conducive for those those birds. And we're not praying for drought. Don't get me get me wrong, but just recognizing that that's likely to provide an opportunity in a in a in a buffer um, in 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 those kind of years. So, um, you know, our biologists are working on those on the WMAs. I think it'd be an interesting conversation back to. Um, your question earlier about what else could the department be doing, you know, is there a need for, you know, a big kind of quail, grassland, bird-oriented wildlife management area um, in some part of the state? You know, do the, do the does the does the grassland bird and quail and and uh, upland game bird community think that that would be a strategic investment um, in our state? And would that add value to, you know, quail management and quail hunting, as well as all these other affiliated grassland birds that we that we have? But certainly a, a conversation worth worth having. Good. Uh, I've got about ten more minutes here with you, Carter. So I'm going to move a couple of things pretty quickly. That second conclusion from that 2005 report was promote landowner incentive, technical guidance, and cooperative management efforts to enhance quail and grassland bird habitat. And you mentioned earlier, like the grassland reserve. Uh, the grant program, Grassland Reserve Incentive Program, which I think is kind of up in there in that uh, Wichita Falls down to Albany area, an area that has certainly fallen off the map over the last 10 years as results to quail. So I know there's some, there are some efforts there. Uh, relative to that, you've got a lot of new biologists out there. Uh, I don't know, I don't know what the median age is, but I'd guess it's less than 40 uh, and a lot of sharp young people. But my concern is, are they well versed in quail management? Have they been introduced? Have they had opportunities? Do they need opportunities to uh, sharpen their skills as it relates to uh, Bob White and, and scale quail management? How would you answer that? Yeah, well, first I'd just say that that like any new biologist, um, you know, it's it, it probably really unrealistic to expect that they're going to be the the experts on much, right? I mean, they're still new and um, you know, fresh out of graduate school plus some, um, you know, several years of experience, and so, you know, there's a huge opportunity for us to be investing early um, in all things quail um, with that um, community of biologists that are out there every day providing, you know, technical assistance to, to private landowners. And we want to make sure that they're well grounded in, you know, the right tenets and principles and practices of habitat management and, and for things like quail and, and other species that landowners are interested in. And so, you know, Dale, I, I hope we see more go through, you know, quail masters. Um, I hope that people will take you up on your entreaty to, you know, take your local wildlife biologist on a, on a, on a, on a quail hunt. Um, um, I hope that we can have some, you know, mentored sessions um, around the state um, from and with our, our our quail partners to continue to help, you know, lift up um, their and our 
um, expertise. My, my sense is, Dale, is that our biologists have a lot of want to. They're very eager to learn. Um, they're very um, interested in, in acquiring more information so that they can better serve, you know, our mission as big and broad and diverse as it is. But when it comes to, to quail, to make sure that they've got the right information and also, you know, can serve as, as, as part of those, that, that, that integrator to help connect folks with, with others that can that can help and and you know back to kind of your second point about where have all the quail gone i think when you look at this the success of that grassland restoration incentive program that's been implemented through largely through like the oaks and prairie joint venture or the pastures for upland birds or you know what we've been able to do with farm bill programs i think there's a lot of success out there a lot to be done um, but certainly a lot of investments that are going on the ground on habitat related management and technical assistance on on private private lands well and i was serious about taking biologists quail hunting like i said i've tried to uh I've tried to either instill or reinstill, or reignite that flame that they might have had some time ago and taken them quail hunting. And you mentioned quail masters, and uh, certainly the quail masters team stands ready and uh, with open arms to include more of the TPW biologists. We love having them. And let me take this opportunity to give a shout out to Hunter Hopkins. Hunter was named our top student at this most recent quail master session. He's the assistant manager up there at the Matador Wildlife Management Area. So congratulations to Hunter on that. I'm going to wind it down here with you, Carter. Um, I recall a quote from Sir Winston Churchill during, I don't know, 1941 or 42 in the darkest days of Britain versus uh, the Nazi empire. And Winston Churchill said, quote, never never, 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 in things great or small, never give up. I want you to close out your section with some Winston Churchill wisdom and encouragement to our quail hunting community. Well, I love that. And I, I, I'll tell you, I'm reading Splendid in the Vile right now, Dale, which is a terrific, um, you know, um, treatise on Winston Churchill. And um, when, when, when he took over there as prime minister right before, you know, um, the Germans um, jumped the channel and, and came into Great Britain. And so a fascinating, fascinating read. And you're right. Never, ever, ever give up. I, um, you know, to the persistent goes the victory. And I, um, I am absolutely convinced um, that when it comes to all things quail, um, that our persistence, um, redoubling it and retripling it, is going to is going to pay off. And and again, a year like this year for you know our hunters that primarily focus in in in, in North Texas or our landowners that are up in that part of the area, it's it's hard not to just say God is all this for naught and. Um, and and let us assure you it's not um and we need to continue to work on this together and pull the sled um it would be our greatest tragedy to see um this bird go away under under our watch and we need everybody to continue to stick with this and and um count on your parks and wildlife team dale to be right alongside you doing that and look forward to seeing the fruits of that in the years to come i'm going to cheer loudly from the from the sidelines and do my own small part in the private sector to continue helping to, to pull the sled and and i can't thank you enough for your um long-standing and tireless advocacy um 
for all things quail and quail hunting, you've made a huge difference, Dale, and it's been a privilege um, to work with you over the years. And I'm, I'm most grateful for your friendship and, and mentorship, and, and I just can't thank you enough for that. Well, ditto from me to you, Carter. Again, uh, you've been very impressive, and I, uh, what an impressive tenure, and, and certainly you've had the heart of a champion and a and a Viking, if you will, against some of those uh, mountains to die on down there. So uh, we hope that uh, we wish you the best in your retirement. Uh, we know you won't be quote unquote retired truly and uh, wish the best to uh, David uh, as he succeeds you there and uh, try to you bring him out there to the quail ranch. Like I said, we can't promise him a 55 covey day, but uh, we want to get to know him. Uh, certainly. And lastly, Carter, and I should have mentioned this earlier, but I really appreciate the attention and efforts that you've given to our Bob White and Buckskin Brigades, the Texas Brigades in general. Uh, you've come up to help us on a couple of different times, and uh, I just appreciate you taking time out of your busy, super busy schedule to share it with those young people like that. Well, honored to do it. No, no greater investment um, than investing in the future of all this through the kids. Um, and the last thing we need is more ignorance in our world. And when it comes to things that we care about on fish and wildlife and, you know, hunting and fishing and, and all things quail and more, um, if we're not investing in that future generation, um, we're going to lose the battle and the war. So honored to be a small participant in that and, and so grateful to you and all the others who started that many years ago. And it's it's so incredibly rewarding, Dale, to see, you know, the biologists and game wardens and and others within this department um, that went through some of those brigades camps. And of course, it's been incredibly rewarding um, to see the brigades um, expand, um, you know, into the bass and coastal brigades and ranch brigades, et, et cetera. It's really um, grown from um, its, its, its early days. Um, but the, the kids that come through those programs, um, Dale, are like FFA kids. Um, they're motivated. They're inspired. They're inspiring. They're great communicators. They're thoughtful. They're resourceful. They get things done. And I'll tell you, they're the kind of young people you want to hire to be on your team. Absolutely. Kudos to you and all the others. Absolutely. And I'll end our discussion with a quote from Derek Bach, who was president of Harvard University, who said, and I quote, if you think education is expensive, try ignorance. End quote. Carter, again, we thank you. Uh, Gary, I'm turning it back to you in the studio, and i got Thanksgiving coming up here in a week or so, and certainly want to wish everybody a, a great Thanksgiving and safe Thanksgiving And when you're out quail and deer hunting and enjoying the great outdoors, and we'll look forward to seeing you next month. Thank you so much, Dr. Dale, and thank you, Carter Smith, for caring so much about our state's wild things and wild places during your tenure at the department. Continued success in your next chapter and adventure. We hope you've enjoyed this month's podcast and conversation. For more information about the Dr. Dale on Quail podcast and past episodes, go to the website of the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation at quailresearch.org. There you'll find more about the foundation's research ranch, its research projects, and a great list of frequently asked quail questions. Be sure to check it out. I'm Gary Joyner of the Texas Farm Bureau. Thank you for joining us today. Until next time. Support from Gordian Sons Outfitters makes Dr. Dale on Quail possible. Gordian Sons, the finest hunting and fly fishing shop to be found. Find out more at GordianSons.com.